0: One online. you <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: U.S. Navy history, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the Kristoff. Hey, it's, th- it's the me. Uh, hey, Captain. Good to see you. So, um, we are going to be diving a little bit deeper into the revolution, into the specific campaigns. We're going to start out with Boston. There And then with Boston, there's a couple of naval battles that uh, we'll talk about. So, uh, are you uh, ready to get underway? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I'm very looking forward to this. All righty. So, just to uh, remind everybody uh, about what happened at the very beginning, because Boston is the very beginning. So, the town shed acts was passed by the British Parliament in 1767. You remember what uh, this act did? I believe the, col- the
2: colonists called them the Intolerable Acts, and they tried to recoup money from a recent uh, skirmish or war that they had, and it was basically taxing a lot of different things, including tea.
1: Right. And paper, glass, paint, you know, pretty much anything that's being imported. So the Sons of Liberty and other patriot uh, organizations responded with uh, different protests. They organized boycotts of the goods that were subject to the uh, duty. And they actually harassed and threatened customs personnel who took the money. And a lot of these guys were, you know, either corrupt or related to uh, provisional leaders anyway. I heard that um, the biggest thing was there was a huge, there was
2: huge, not privateering, what is the word, smuggling activity done by Americans. Like, they did everything they could to get around um, the royal official avenues of importing stuff so they could avoid taxes generally. But when these uh, these acts came into effect... Especially the Stamp Act, it's like they were required to get a specific stamp to unload their cargo and it really put a dent in their smuggling. And this may be hearsay, but from what I understand, that is what really drove them crazy. It's like, hey, your 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 legal acts are interfering with my illegal smuggling.
1: Well, not only that, but you know, they're being taxed and they don't have a say in the matter. But yet they're, they're citizens. Supposedly. Mm, not for long. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, a guy named Francis Bernard, he was the governor of the province of Massachusetts Bay. He requested military forces to protect these uh, customs personnel guys. In October of 1768, Bo- British troops arrived in Boston and occupied it and then tensions that uh, led from this occupation directly led to the boston massacre do you know
2: what date that happened i the, i do not know the date of the boston massacre i know it was winter time if i recall
1: march 5th 1770
2: technically i'm still right I think March
1: 21st is, uh, no, April. Hold on. Well, yeah, still winter. Okay. March. Uh, this occupation also led to the Boston Tea Party. What's the date on that? I believe it's uh, 1773.
2: Right. What was the month and day? I just. You you mumbled. Did you not. Did it, I want to say it was summertime. You said it incorrectly. Oh. December and 16th. You... December 16th. I was going off the old Roman calendar, I'm sorry. Oh, ah. yeah, you, you got to use a new Roman calendar. The, the Well, the Julian, yeah, or Gregorian? I gotcha. Okay,
1: I'm on board now. So, response to the Tea Party and the other protests, Parliament enacted the Intolerable Acts to punish the colonies. With the Massachusetts Government Act of 1774, this effectively abolished the provincial government of Massachusetts. A guy named General Thomas Gage, who was the commander-in-chief of the British troops in North America, was appointed governor of Massachusetts and was instructed by King George and his government to enforce royal authority in the colony. Now, there was resistance, and this made the uh, new appointed royal officials in Massachusetts either quit their jobs or to go to ground in Boston. Uh, Gage, he had about 4,000 men in Boston. But, you know, that's about where his uh, influence stopped because they couldn't control the countryside.
2: Now, at this time, I know um, Boston was kind of under the... let Let me see if I can ask this question properly. So Boston seemed to be the focal point of a lot of these acts and the resistance and all of that, but these intolerable acts that were passed by the parliament, did they affect the Massachusetts colony only, or was it all the colonies? Everybody. Oh, man, if I was Georgian, I would be so upset. You know what I mean? They were. Like, the people in Boston do this, and now we have to deal with that? So Thomas Gage, being the royal governor now that the provincial governor has been eliminated, or that position has been eliminated, did we have similar things happen in other colonies? Or was, is it because Boston was such a hotbed that they did it in Massachusetts specifically?
1: It was done in Massachusetts specifically, Boston specifically, because they were, quote, unquote, the troublesome colony. Uh, So, Some things never change, am I right? Yes, punish everybody, but a little bit more punishment to these guys. I getcha. So, September 1st, 1774 rolls around, and the British remove gunpowder and other military supplies in a raid on the powder magazine near Boston. This scared the heck out of the countryside. And in response to that, thousands of Americans sprang into action because uh, rumors were already abounding that war was about to happen. Now, this did prove to be a false alarm and became known as the powder alarm. And it caused everybody to proceed more carefully in the next days that followed. But this was essentially a dress rehearsal for, you know, seven months later. Mm -hmm. Now, in response to this, at least partially in response to this powder alarm, the colonists did carry off military supplies from several forts in New England and gave them to the local militias. So they're like, uh, you take powder and weapons and stores? We take powder, weapons, and stores. Right. So on the night of April 18th, 1775, General Gage sends 700 men to take the munitions stored by the colonial militia at Concord. Several raiders, including Paul Revere, alerted the countryside. And then when British troops entered Lexington, the morning of April 19th, they found 77 militiamen, or Minutemen, formed up in the village common area. Shots were exchanged, and eight Minutemen were killed. So, of course, they are outnumbered. Well more than the three-to-one that the British needed. Mm -hmm. So the militia, they dispersed. And the British marched on to Concord. At Concord, the troops looked for the uh, military supplies and found relatively little because the colonists had gotten advanced warning and they had hidden the supplies. But during this search, there was a confrontation at the North Bridge and a small company of British troops fired on a large much larger column of militia. And they returned to fire. And they routed the British troops. They hightailed it to the village center and rejoined the other 700 guys they had there. Now, the British had two nicknames. I'm sure you know one of them. Ooh, the Redcoats. Do you know the other one?
2: Hold on. The, uh... I bet it was a rap name, like a street name. So I'm guessing, oh, T-Gage and the Wigs. Oh, so close. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Lobsterbacks. Nice. That's good. (laughs) So when the Lobsterbacks began their return march to Boston, several thousand militiamen had gathered along the road. And so a running fight starts. Because now there's thousands versus 700. Oh, boy. And they suffered heavy casualties before being able to get back to Charlestown. So with the Battle of Lexington and Concord, they were the, quote, shot heard around the world. The war has begun. They did it, guys. Yes.
2: I think it's easy to say now, That it's been settled, and we've, you know, advanced our infrastructure and everything, and our currency isn't as tumultuous as the early dollar. But I'm very
1: excited. And that we're all friends now? Yeah. We can go to England and say hello. And we don't get shot at for doing it. Right. So that's going to bring us to the siege of Boston. So... After the failed Concord expedition, the thousands of militiamen that had converted on Boston stayed there. So over the next few days, more arrived from the area, including from New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And these guys were all under the command of Artemis Ward. They surrounded the city. They blocked its land approaches and Put the city under siege the british they fortified the high points of the city at, while you know they were being encircled. Now, the British were able to resupply by sea, but you know it takes a while for these boats to get there yeah. so So the supplies were still you know short on hand, so troops are sent out to some of the islands in the Boston Harbor to raid farmers for supplies.
2: Man, that stinks.
1: Yeah. So in response to this, the colonists began clearing those islands of supplies that were, you know, useful to the British. Right. That's good. So one of these was the Battle of Chelsea Creek, which we will be getting into a little bit later. And it resulted in the loss of two British soldiers and a boat. Now, the need for building materials and other supplies, that led a guy named Admiral Samuel Graves to authorize a Loyalist merchant to send his ships from Boston to Machies in the District of Maine, which was accompanied by a Royal Navy schooner. The Machias townspeople, they were like, ah, no. They seized the merchant vessels and the schooner after a short battle. And we will be talking about that one as well. Because it's navy. Right. It's
2: something that's a battle I'd never heard of. And I'm excited to learn more about it.
1: Yeah. So because of that resistance from the Machias citizens and also of other coastal communities, this made Graves authorize a expedition of reprisal in October, and uh the only significant act was when they burned Falmouth. Now, this of course sparked outrage. And this contributed to the passing of legislation by the Second Continental Congress, and it officially established the Continental Navy. Now, the British weren't the only ones with supply issues. The uh, colonial army also had issues with supplies and actually its command structure, because all these militias needed to be organized, fed, clothed, and armed, and the command structure needed to be coordinated because as at right at this point in time, each militia leader was responsible to his province's Congress. So that brings us to Bunker Hill. This was late in May and General Gage received reinforcements, about 2000 guys and also three generals. Wow. These were these were generals, William Howie, General John Beyond or Burgon and General Henry Clinton. They made a plan to break out of Boston and it was finalized on June 12th. Reports of these plans made their way to the rebels and they decided additional defensive steps were necessary. Why wouldn't they think that? Yeah, Why wouldn't no they decide that?
2: It's like, oh, they're going to do a massive uh, initiative, and we should probably respond. We should uh, get ready.
1: Yeah. So on the night of June 16th to 17th in 1775, a detachment of rebels were very stealthy and marched onto the Charleston Peninsula. Uh, The British had already abandoned that area in April And so they fortified Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. Nice. On June 17th, British forces under General Howie attacked and seized the Charleston Peninsula. This was the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now, this was technically a British victory, but their losses, which was about a third of the attacking force, Whoa. which included a significant amount of the entire British Corps in North America. Th- these losses were so heavy that they, you know, they just stopped there. They did not follow up on their attack. Makes sense. This also means that the siege was still in place. And this is when General Gage was sent back to England and replaced by General Howie as commander-in-chief. Is this
2: where the expression... Um don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes originates from? At least, um, that's what I've heard. Yes,
1: this is where
2: that came from. And I can see why those losses were so high, just given
1: the technology
2: of the, the rifles they had.
1: Yeah. So the Second Continental Congress had a meeting in Philadelphia. They received reports of the situation in Boston when it began to meet in May and in, in response to the confusion over the command structure over there in the in their camps and in response to the capture of fort Ticonderoga on May 10th they realized they had a need for a unified military organization i don't know why it took this long but there you go <laughs> So Congress officially adopted the forces outside of Boston as the Continental Army on May 26th and named General George Washington as Commander-in-Chief. I've heard of that guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he's got a university just down the way. That must have been where they picked him up from.
1: Maybe. So Washington leaves Philadelphia for Boston on June 21st but he did not learn of the bunker hill battle until he got to new york city. Hmm. Now, following the battle of bunker hill, the siege was effectively a stalemate. Neither side had a dominant position or pre or the will or material to significantly make a dominant position. So when Washington takes command of the army in July, he determined that its size had been reduced from 20,000 to 13,000 men.
2: That's significant.
1: Yes. He also established that the battle had severely depleted the army's stock of powder, which you need to shoot their weapons. Oh, yes. But this was solved by powder shipments from Philadelphia. The British were also busy bringing in reinforcements by the time Washington got there. So the British now had more than 10,000 men in the city. Wow.
2: And I just, I guess for, to help me visualize the whole thing, uh, 10,000 troops is a lot in a city and in the revolutionary time frame. How big were the biggest American cities? So I'm, I'm guessing like Philadelphia, Boston, New York are probably the biggest ones, but what was the population of those cities? Do you have an idea?
1: So in 1775, the largest cities of the American colonies in terms of population were Philadelphia, New York City, Boston, Charleston. Philadelphia was about 43,000. New York was about 25,000. Boston at 16,000 and Charleston at 12,000.
2: So Boston has 16,000 souls living in it, and then all of a sudden, 10,000 troops come in. So that's that's really significant. They have places, they need places to stay, things to eat, places to poop. I mean, there's a lot going on there.
1: Yeah, they almost doubled the amount of people in that city. That's crazy. In a besieged city. Right. So, yeah, so throughout... the supplies would be
2: difficult enough to get just for their own populace, and then it stretched even thinner with this occupying force. That, that would be really hard uh, as a citizen of Boston.
1: And you know the British aren't sharing their supplies with the civilians. No way. No way. So, throughout the summer and fall, both sides dig in. There were occasional skirmishes, but neither side chose to take any significant action against each other. So Congress wanted to take some initiative and capitalize on the capture of tight Congaruga. And they said, guess what, guys, we're going to go invade Canada. That's wild. Well, Canada's British. Yes, I
2: agree. But it's also cold. Nobody wants, I don't know, I don't, I guess it's not as different than uh, Buffalo, New York in the winter, but.
1: Yeah. So in September, Benedict Arnold led 1,100 men on a expedition through Maine. And it was drawn from the army assembled outside of Boston. So now Boston has uh, 1,100 less men on that Hmm. siege line. And Washington also had another crisis at the end of the year. Because most of the troops in the army had had enlistments that were expiring. So in response to this, he introduced a number of recruitment incentives, And because of this, was able to keep the army large enough to maintain the siege. Although by this time, it is smaller than the forces that are being besieged.
2: So that's that's interesting, right? Because Boston could easily, the, the British troops there could decide, hey, look how small that force is. If we just take them on now, capture their general, this is over. And so I'm curious why, I guess strategically, maybe in the the British playbook, it's like, hey, if you're being sieged, just do these things,
1: and it never includes go out and take care of the problem. Well, remember, when you are going to take a fortified position, which a uh, the siege, which the... Uh, the siege army had, the ratio you want is 3 to 1. So, with 10,000 troops in the city, you need at the besieging force to be at least 2,500 or less. I'm sure there was more than 2,500 still on that siege line. I see. Okay. Also, attacking a fortified position is very, very hard and deadly. Yes, that's true. So, you know, that the decision has to be made very carefully, especially with reinforcements months away. Right, and the supplies were already stretched thin, and so
2: why use up all that powder for potentially no gain? Okay. Yeah.
1: You've convinced me. <laughs> so, in early March 1776, a guy, an engineer, in fact, named Henry Knox, he moved the heavy cannons that had been captured at Fort Ticonderoga and moved them to Boston. The guns were placed on Dorchester Heights over a a day. And this position overlooked the British positions. Oh. So this means that the British positions were now untenable. Now, General Howey did plan an attack to reclaim that high ground, but a snowstorm rolled in and prevented the attack to happen. So the British were like, "Uh, okay, guys, we're going to leave, but if you mess with us, we're going to burn the city. So they were successfully able to evacuate the city on March 17th of 1776 and sailed for refuge in Halifax. Uh, So once the British are gone, the local militias dispersed, and in April, General Washington takes most of the Continental Army to fortify New York City. And this would be the start of the New York and New Jersey campaign. Every time you say New York City, I want to shout,
2: New York City! But uh, I don't know if our listeners would get an old paste picante sauce commercial joke. So I'll just let it slide. Some of them
1: will. Okay. okay. New York City! There you go. Alright, so let's talk about the Battle of Chelsea Creek. This was the second military engagement of the Boston Campaign. It was also known as the Battle of Noodles Island, the Battle of Hog Island, and the Battle of chelsea estuary
2: hmm. i don't know if there's so many names just because a lot happened or there was just a lot of confusion about it and it's just a bunch of people like no it was hogs island yeah that's chelsea
1: estuary you fool sorry go ahead Now that's all good <laughs> So, as we mentioned before, uh, after the Battle of Lexington and Concord, thousands of militia forces from throughout New England were, you know, besieging Boston. But the British were still able to sail supplies in from Nova Scotia, Providence, and other places. But there was one remaining local area that was able to continue to supply the British forces in Boston after this war began. Farmers to the east of the city in coastal areas and on the Boston Harbor found themselves vulnerable because once the siege began because they were exposed to British influence from the sea. Now, they knew that if they continued to sell livestock to the regulars, they would be viewed as loyalists in the eyes of the American forces. But if they refused to sell to the British, they would consider them rebel. And they would just go in there guns blazing and take what they want. That's a bad situation to be in. Yeah. So on May 14th, the Massachusetts under Joseph Warren issued a order, quote, resolved as their opinion that all the livestock be taken from Noodles Island, Hog Island, Snake Island, and from that part of Chelsea near the sea coast and be driven back and that the execution of this business be committed to the committees of correspondence and selectmen of the towns of Medford, Malden, Chelsea, and Lynn, and that they be supplied with such a number of men as they shall need from the regiment now at Medford. So this was the order for the evacuation of these islands that we talked about a little while ago.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, was it just the livestock that they're removing from these islands? Yep. Wild. I
1: bet that's tough. Oh, it's not easy. Not easy today. <laughs> so, a few days before the battle, Warren and General Artemis Ward inspected Noodles Island and Hogs Island, which is northeast of Boston and east of Charleston. And they found, you know, no British, no British troops there, but a ton of livestock. The animals in the other coastal areas had already been moved inland by the people that owned them. Mm -hmm. And on May 21st, the British had sailed troops to Great Island in the outer harbor near Weymouth to get hay and livestock. But they had been driven off by militia. And then the the militia then removed the livestock and burned the hay on the island. So the British Navy that uh, was around... Boston, was under the command of a guy named Vice Admiral Samuel Graves, and the Royal Marines were commanded by Major John Picturn. Now, Graves, in addition to hay and livestock, hired storage on Noodles Island for a, a lot of different important naval supplies, and he felt that they were important to preserve because of the, quote, almost impossibility of re. Real- of replacing them at this juncture, you know they can't wait months before getting that stuff back. No way. Yeah. So Vice Admiral Graves he received intelligence that the colon uh, that the colonials might take might make attempts on the islands, and uh, so he posted guard boats near Noodles Island. They were pretty much just long boats with marine stuffed in them. So the regiment now at Medford that the Committee of Safety had put there, the guy's name was Colonel John Stark. He commanded the 1st New Hampshire Regiment, which was about 300 guys, and they were stationed near Winter Hill, and the headquarters was in Medford. So he took his orders from General Ward. And Stark and his regiment crossed the bridge over the Mystic River at about midnight on May 27th. This route took them very far north from Chelsea Creek through Malden and parts of what are now the cities of Everett and Revere. And on their march, they also uh, grabbed, you know, local men to uh, help them.
2: Might as well. I mean, it's midnight, so I'm guessing. Uh... They're hitting up the pubs or something. I don't know who would be up at that time, but uh, it's perfect. It's like, hey. Maybe
1: maybe banging on the doors, waking them up.
2: That's right. (laughs) Trying to put myself into the position of a person of that day dealing with those things. As you keep mentioning these things, it's so foreign from just like a day-to-day life here in America, at least for me. And so I can't imagine... I'm going to go to bed. Oh, someone's banging on my door. Oh, they want me to help them repel an invading force or protect our community resources from said force. It's it's just, it's wild. So, yes, continue. I'll continue to have my mind
1: blown as you speak. And the chance of that actually ever happening to you are so remote and slim. No invading force has really has a chance to be able to even reach our shores much less land that's true
2: well i guess technically in this circumstance it wasn't an invading force so much as the the forces of the king the government that presides over your colony so it is technically your own government that is doing this
1: it's an already occupied force yeah yeah
2: um So, yes, they're going around. It's midnight. They're picking up people far north. (laughs) What's next?
1: So Hog Island is accessible at low tide from the east by fording Bell Island Creek near what is the current location of Bell Isle Marsh Reservation. So this crossing was able to take place without the Marines that were in the longboats noticing. So Sark begins to move his force to Hog Island at about 1000, And he directed most of the men to round up livestock. And while there, he forded Crooked Creek to Noodles Island with about 30 guys. His small force on Noodles Island scattered into small groups, killed the animals they could find, and set fire to the haystacks and the barns. Well, if we can't take them with them... If we can't take yeah. them with us, we're not leaving them there for the enemy.
2: That's crazy. That's, uh, but I mean, that was a regular. We've we've talked about this throughout this conflict. That was a regular thing. It's like we're not going to leave leave you with the powder or the food or shelter, even in some circumstances.
1: Oh, by the way, for those that uh, participate in our drinking gub, our drinking game, uh, arson drink. <laughs> So, now that the arson has started, there is now smoke in the air. And that's when the British first noticed something was amiss. Vice Admiral Graves, on his flagship, the HMS Preston, sees the smoke at about 1,400. And he signals his marines to land on Noodles Island, which they did. And they engaged Stark's forces. Of course, at this time, they're in small detachments, so you know not uh, not going to be a big battle.- mm-hmm. Graves also orders the schooner Diana, who was which was under the command of his nephew, a guy named Lieutenant Thomas Graves, to sail up the Chelsea Creek to support the landing operation and to cut off the escape route for the colonists, or for the colonials. So they land roughly 400 Marines, and they formed ranks. You know, they made their blocky formations. Right. (laughs) And they began to drive Stark's men back to the east. And no, so they mean their scattered forces versus a block of solid lobster backs. They retreated without firing a shot, Smart.
2: Uh, I think they accomplished their mission right I mean that, that the purpose was to disrupt the resources and say so they don't need to stand and fight if they can well, avoid
1: it. now they gotta escape oh yeah, yeah so they 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 flee until they reach Crooked Creek. There they dropped into marshy ditches and fired on the lobster backs. i love that nickname, <laughs> and these uh ditches are strong defensive positions so this is when a ferocious battle follows the colonists squatting down in the ditch and they just started shooting at them until the lobster backs retreated no kidding yeah they the marines withdrew from their positions to the interior of noodles island And that's when the Stark's men left Crooked Creek and joined the main body of the forces on Hog Island. Now, the HMS Diana and other vessels that were with her continued northeast up Chelsea Creek, uh, pursuing these guys. And by sunset, hundreds of cattle, sheep and horses had been driven from Hog Island to the mainland. Um... Also around sunset, Diana turned around in an attempt to avoid being trapped in the shallows of the creek. But Lieutenant Graves realized he would need help, and he sent a signal to his his daddy, Vice Admiral Graves. And so the Vice Admiral orders barges with Marines in them into the creek to tow the Diana out. Along with the sloop the Britannica and the and a tender the HMS Somerset, I'm sorry, Uncle Vice Admiral Graves. Oh right, yes, because
2: it was his nephew,
1: right? Uh, That the HMS uh, Somerset was under the command of another cousin, Lieutenant John Graves. I
2: suspect nepotism, or maybe it's the family business. Who knows? The British, they buy their ranks. Remember? We discussed this. Right. Well, yes. Uh, I guess let's continue. I'll continue listening to see if the Graves family is capable. And because even though you buy your rank, you still may be capable, but odds are you're not. You're not going through the the arduous task of getting promoted and learning from experience of the different uh, conflicts that Britain was in. So. Continue, and then I'll I'll make a judgment on the Graves family.
1: Well, I, I do know that uh, little old Thomas did go on to become a admiral later in his life. So, I mean... Yeah. Whether he bought it or not, I don't know. But, you know.
2: But I guess if your family's in the business, and you're around them all the time, and you just get to know, they, hey, tell me about the tactics of this battle that you were in. Well, this was what was important, and... It would be just like apprenticing with your dad who's a carpenter or a a tradesman of some sort.
1: Well, let's hope that they did take that tactic instead of just being completely worthless like a lot of these guys were.
2: Well, I mean, well, yeah, we'll see. I don't want them (laughs) to be too effective. They are trying to suppress the American colonists.
1: So uh, some of, you know, Stark's men were driving the livestock up the coast. And others noticed that the Diana was in trouble, and they called for reinforcements. General Putnam had, like, a thousand troops, and they came up on the shore near Diana. This was at the mouth of Chelsea Creek. Putnam waded out into the river up to his waist and offered quarter to the sailors of the Diana if they would surrender. But, uh... He received cannon fire in response, as you do, right. And the the boats that were there to try to help tow her back out continued to try to tow her back out. So the colonial fire, uh, the colonial forces kept firing on her onto her, and they actually had two field pieces there to fire on her as well. Uh so Britannica and the field pieces the British had landed on whose island were. Starting to fire on the colonists now. Okay. So at around twenty two hundred, the uh British roar the British guys who were trying to tow them out, you know, just by oars, they are now abandoning the 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 attempted towing of the Diana because the the gunfire was just way too heavy now. You know, they're in rowboats.
2: Yeah, you don't need to row and avoid gunfire and cannon fire, for goodness sake.
1: So the Diana drifted again and ran aground again on the Mystic River side of the Chelsea coast. And she had a pretty good list What she uh, ran aground. Lieutenant Graves then orders them to abandon ship. And he transfers his guys on to the Britannica. Which was able to successfully reach deep water. So, our American boys, they board Diana and they quickly take everything and anything of value, including the guns, rigging, sails, clothing, and money. Nice. Then they took some hay and they laid it under her stern. Uh oh. And set her on fire. All right, drink arson. Up. They did this about zero three hundred. The they they think that the guns that they did recover from her were used on Bunker Hill.
0: Hmm, that's cool.
1: Yeah. So, this battle was apparently the first use of field pieces by the colonial army. They suffered no fatalities and only had a handful of wounded that's impressive right so this boosted their morale because they didn't have very many casualties they captured and destroyed a british navy naval vessel that's yeah that's significant and this also gave israel putnam the collateral he needed to be appointed by the Second Continental Congress as a general in the Continental Army. Yeah, I could see that. That was a very
2: successful operation.
1: Yeah. Now, General Gage, when he sent his report back to London, he said, quote, two men were killed and a few wounded. But this was an understatement. The Pennsylvania Journal reported on June twenty-first, 1775 that General Gage himself recorded at least 100 killed while other sources said more than 300. One source said, quote, the regulars were said to have suffered very much, not to have had less than 200 killed and wounded. The loss was probably greatly exaggerated that, however, had a good effect on the provisionals. The affair was a matter of no small triumph to them, and they felt upon the occasion more courageous than ever.
2: Mm. Well, good for them.
1: Yeah. So, General Gate orders cannon mounted on top of cop's hill in boston and vice admiral graves moves the somerset which had been stationed in the shallow waters between boston and charleston into deeper waters to the east of boston where you know they could actually maneuver the thing right uh he also sent a detachment of regulars to secure noodles island you know fat lot of good that does after the fact Right. It's like closing the the doors
2: of the barn after the horses have left.
1: Yeah. I mean, the colonists had already removed or destroyed anything of value on the island. Maybe it was just to, to
2: say that they did it. I don't know. Boosting their resume of sorts to back home, back to the British Isles. It's like, yeah, you know what? But we retook the island. And they don't need to include that it was a totally worthless gesture.
1: Yeah. Uh, in modern times, there have been several attempts to locate the remains of the Diana in the creek, and they have extensively dredged and, and industrialized in you know the years since, but they have been not able to find anything they could identify as hers. Right. But the National Park Service has given funds for a state of the For a state-led effort to keep looking
2: so they're still looking cool that's neat if they find it i mean they're still finding all kinds of crazy stuff all around the world so that's exciting
1: yeah this just this year with the record drought conditions rivers have have uh dropped so much they have been finding old uh civil war wrecks wow but that's the battle of chelsea creek Nice. That's a, that's nice
2: to start off uh our deep dive with such a route uh a rout by the
1: Americans. Yeah. That was a uh, that was good for the US, not good for the British. Right. Uh so next time we're going to talk about the Battle of Machias. Okay. Um also the Battle of Gloucester the invasion of quebec the battle of Valcour island and if we have time after that we'll dive into the new york new jersey campaign and talk about the first submersible used in combat are you serious this early that's crazy i am serious that's that's awesome i can't wait to hear it so at the end of each of our episodes, we like to honor one of our fallen angels. And today we're going to honor First Lieutenant Michael Joseph Blasi. He his hometown was St. Louis, Missouri. He served with the U.S. Air Force. His unit was the Eighth Special Operations Squadron, 377th Air Base Wing, 7th Air Force. He received the Silver Star. Distinguished Flying Cross, the air Medal with four oak leaf clusters, wow. and a purple heart. His date of sacrifice was May 11th, 1972, killed in action near An Loc, South Vietnam. He was 24 years old. So for a time, he was the Vietnam War era unknown buried at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. This is the tomb that serves as a symbolic grave for all war dead whose remains have not been found or identified. Michael Blassie was born on April fourth, 1948 in Florescent, Missouri, which is a suburb north of St. Louis. He was the oldest of George and Jean Blassett's five children. After graduating from St. Louis University High School, with the class of 1966, Michael was accepted at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and received his commission as an officer in June 1970. He was sent to Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi for undergraduate pilot training and earned his aeronautical rating as a pilot in 1971. After more training, Blassie qualified on the Cessna A-37 Dragonfly. The Dragonfly was a small, light, jet-powered attack aircraft nicknamed the Super Tweet. The planes were relatively inexpensive, and because they could fly low and slow, they could deliver their firepower more accurately than heavier conventional bombers. But that accuracy came at a price. The Dragonfly was also more vulnerable to enemy ground fire than the higher altitude bombers. In January of 1972, Sea deployed to Vietnam with the Eighth Op, with the Eighth Special Operations Squadron, 377th Air Base Wing. 7th Air Force. And on the morning of May 11th, 1972, 1st Lieutenant Blassie took off from the Binh Hoa Air Base in South Vietnam in his Dragonfly A-37. Just four months after arriving in Vietnam, he'd already flown 137 combat missions. Dang. On this day, he was targeting an enemy artillery position outside of An Loc near the Vietnam-Canadian Cambodian border 60 miles north of Saigon. Witnesses report seeing a burst of anti-aircraft tracer rounds firing at Blasi's Dragonfly as he attacked the target in close combat. Blasi's flight commander, Major James Conley, described the attack in a letter to Blasi's parents. Quote, Mike's aircraft was hit and began streaming fuel. He must have been killed instantly because he did not transmit a distress call of any kind. The aircraft flew a short distance on its own and then slowly rolled over, exploding on impact in enemy-held territory. The next day, efforts were made to recover 1st Lieutenant Blassey and to inspect the wreckage. Heavy enemy fire prevented immediate access to this site, and Michael Blaset, aged 24, was declared killed in action. Six months later, the Allied South Vietnamese Army gained access to the crash site and recovered Blassey's personal belongings and six bone fragments. All were sent to the Saigon Mortuary, then to a search and recovery center at Camp Sa- Camp Saimae San in Thailand, and finally to Hawaii's Central Identification Laboratory. The Belasse's remains being separated from his personal belongings and other items from the crash site. A series of mistakes and flawed procedures led to his remains being reclassified as designated unknown. and stored the Central Identification Laboratory in a file with the label X26. First Lieutenant Blassey's family was not informed that the crash site had been accessed or that the remains were recovered. On Memorial Day, May 28, 1984, the remains designated X-26 were interred as the Vietnam Unknown in a cemetery at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. After years of political and media pressure from the Blasey family, former Army Green Beret, Ted Sampley, and CBS reporters Eric Edinburgh and Vince Gonzalez in May 1998, the Pentagon and Defense Secretary, William Cohen, announced that the Vietnam unknown would be disinterred and DNA tested. Test, re- test results confirmed a perfect match with Michael Blasset's older sister, Judy. Twenty-six years after his dragonfly was shot down, First Lieutenant Michael Joseph Blasey's remains were returned to his family in St. Louis, Missouri, where he was laid to rest at Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery. In Honolulu, Hawaii, 1st Lieutenant Blassé's name is engraved on the American Battle Monument Commission's Courts of the Missing, along with the others who are missing for the Vietnam War. As is the custom, a rosette had been placed next to his name to indicate that he had been found. Blassé is honored at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. His name is scribed on panel 01W, line 23. Michael Blassé's younger sister, Patricia, who served as an Air Force colonel, was 13 years old at the time of his death, remembers, quote, He was strong, he was fearless, and he loved what he was doing. He was the heart, the soul, and the spirit that is America. First Lieutenant Michael Joseph Blase, we thank you. Thank you. And with that, XO, take us out. Yes, sir. So, uh,
2: like always, thank you so much for listening to us. Um, Every time you hear a a story from us. We hope that you're entertained, educated, and, uh, you know, you, you, your commute goes a little easier or what, whatever monotonous task you have at hand, we're able to help. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, there's a couple different ways to do that. You can email us at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, alternatively, you can reach us on Twitter or X uh, with the handle at USN. History pod? And Still not X-rated. Also, it's not yes, we're not not yet. We're we're dabbling. We're we're in talks. We'll see. I mean, it's the Navy tradition, right? Sailors talking? I don't know. Maybe that's RPG 13. Anyway. R, definitely uh, we're, R. We're on Discord. And uh you can interact with us there if you want a link to that server. Please look at the show notes and follow it there. Um Additionally, we're on YouTube. You can hear us on YouTube. And uh, please subscribe wherever you are and leave us a review. And that just let us know you're out there and how we're helping
1: y'all. Thanks, a Captain. Back to you. And with that, we're going to wish you guys fair winds and following seas. Bye, guys. See ya. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing.